Say, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my whole slate of co-hosts today, Alex Lawson. Hi, Amber. Welcome back. Dean Seal. Hello, hello. And Haley Knopf. Hey there. Yeah, gang's all here. It's nice to have everybody. Boop, boop, full house. Great to be here. Um, I did want to start the show with a news item uh, right off the top here. Um, some big news in the very competitive world of law school rankings as Harvard. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Harvard. Uh, Harvard? Harvard. They, Harvard. Never heard <laughs> there an E in there? They have dropped out of the top three in the latest U.S. News and World Report law school rankings. Bum, bum, bum. Uh, Look, wow. it's, it's kind of hard to feel sorry for Harvard. I'm going <laughs> to say that. They <laughs> remain Harvard an exceptional school. <laughs> yes. um, but I will say my first thought, because I'm an idiot, uh, when I heard this news was, oh, bad news for Elle Woods. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good call. Honestly, it's kind of an up and down week for Harvard, right? I mean, they, they're about to get another Supreme Court justice on the bench, which I know is a big feather in their cap. They've been doing that. For decades, and Ketanji Brown Jackson is likely going to be confirmed. But then this, I mean, there's no there's no glossing over this. Yale's still on top, mm-hmm. uh, Stanford second, and now slotting into the number three spot previously occupied by Harvard, my people, University of Chicago Chi-town. Law School. Uh, I did not attend the University of Chicago. I just uh, support the city of Chicago in all its <laughs> endeavors. So Sure. Yeah. So that's what's going on uh, in the law school ranking. I could talk law school rankings all day long, but we do have some interesting news on today's show we got to get to. A little later, we have a talk with Jack Karp about some lawsuits that have cropped up around the issue of homelessness, which is something I hadn't even really thought about. And so Jack breaks it all down. It's a really interesting chat. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear that. Um, But first, I want to bring up all of our favorite topic at this time of year, taxes. It's tax season, (laughs) baby. Oh, it's the time of year. Just like the... That's right. Yes. Yes. I wanted to pull the call. Who's who's filed so far? I have not. Nope. I have. Oh, good. Good job. Good for you. I have ignored it completely because mm. this is one for me one of the biggest perks about being married. My husband will handle this. Oh, I don't nice. Need to do this. Okay. Uh, yeah. Really throwing me under the bus as the only other married person <laughs> on the pod. Um, but uh, okay, Haley, you filed. You clearly speak with some authority on this matter. Uh, what's going on? What do we need to know about uh, tax season right now? Well, um, the Federal Trade Commission has some beef with TurboTax, um, mm. and it's been going on for some time. um, And there's a lot going on with this case, especially considering it was only filed a few days ago. But the main thing to know is the FTC has filed this complaint against Intuit, which is TurboTax's parent company. And the their big beef is they say TurboTax has been misleading people about how free its services actually are. It is definitely, I mean, the advertisement literally just kind of beat you over the head with like free, 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 right? Yes. And that is exactly what uh, they were pointing to in their complaint. So they they filed this complaint in California federal court this week. It's claiming that the company doesn't actually permit consumers to file their taxes for free in a lot of instances. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's here's specifically what the FTC said. In truth, TurboTax is only free for some users based on the tax forms they need. For many others, Intuit tells them after they have already invested time and effort gathering and inputting into TurboTax their sensitive personal and financial information to prepare their tax returns, 
that they cannot continue for free. They will need to upgrade to a paid TurboTax service to complete and file their taxes. And in particular, um, like you mentioned, Dean, the FTC is taking issue with those commercials. Um, And they noted, yeah, they noted that in those, almost every word uttered by actors is the word free. (laughs) And some of those ads, according to the FTC, featured the word free more than 40 times over the span (laughs) of just 30 seconds. This feels like a podcasting (laughs) challenge. Like, can we talk and say free 40 times in 30 seconds? Right. Yeah, I, I I have to say this is not really this is a little bit of a digression, but uh, to my knowledge, in like you know deceptive uh, advertising law, there's no cause of action for commercials that are just annoying. But uh, if there was, <laughs> could definitely have a case here. I watch a lot of sports, which means I get subjected to a lot of commercials for financial services, and uh, I don't like this one. Um, but uh, I can talk about it still. I think in some uh, in fairly neutral terms. What else do we need to know? So it's also worth noting that the um, these commercials do have uh, some fine print. Right. Um, they have some disclaimers, um, but the FTC has issues with those too. Mm-hmm. Um, the disclaimers say the offer is limited to consumers with simple tax returns. The FTC says that the company's definition of simple keeps changing over the years. And the disclaimers themselves are super small, appear for just a few seconds, and are in writing only. Um, They're not read by a voice actor or anything, so they're not very prominent. Um, And one of the most noteworthy concerns the FTC has is that many low- and middle-income consumers that paid into it to upgrade to a premium version of TurboTax would have actually been eligible to prepare and file their taxes electronically at no cost through the IRS. Yeah, that's uh, there's a lot going on in this one. It's... it's, um... More complicated than I expected when we started talking. What has the company said in response to these allegations? A lot. They have a lot to say about this. Um, And they have already issued some long sweeping statements and also filed court filings um, saying that they're going to fight this. Intuit General Counsel Carrie McLean said in a statement that the FTC's arguments are simply not credible. Um, Here's her quote. Far from steering taxpayers away from free tax preparation offerings, our free advertising campaigns have led to more Americans filing their taxes for free than ever before and have been central to raising awareness of free tax prep. And she said that uh, those free offerings have helped drive growth from 11 million free filers in 2018 before their free, free, free ad campaign. (laughs) And now it's up to 17 million free filers. Yeah, so, I mean, I do wonder what would happen if they had just included in that free, free, free commercial just like one quick line of somebody saying super fast, like, and actually it's not really free and we have to only give simple taxes and we don't know what that is. Like, uh, I wish there could have been one of those to like clear all that up. This is contingent on the forms you need to complete your, uh, settle your business with the Internal Revenue Service. Only if you don't actually intend to file taxes, that's all. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we could keep going like this for a long time. So what else can we expect? Uh, uh, what, what should we sort of keep an eye on here, Haley, as, uh, as the case moves forward? Yeah, well, so the federal judge overseeing the case has um, actually already ordered the FTC to rewrite and refile its 31-page complaint so that it meets the court's 25-page limit. Um, so we'll, I don't believe that has been filed yet, so we'll have to keep an eye out for that. And um, on top of that, the parties are now fighting over whether the case should be related to some similar cases. Mm-hmm. So a lot to keep an eye on. 
I said, yeah, no, we'll definitely be watching this as, you know, tax season uh, progresses towards the end here. Yeah. File um, your taxes, guys. <laughs> okay. Okay. I got it. I'm on yes, it. Loud and clear. Well, Haley, I love talking about taxes. Who doesn't, <laughs> you know? Um, but there are two things that I love more than taxes, and they go hand in hand. A nice cold beer and a piping hot <laughs> trademark dispute. You are a sicko. <laughs> you are a sicko. <laughs> that delivery. Uh, now, Haley, you wrote a story last week that managed to hit on both of these topics, and so I thought it'd be fun to talk about today. Uh, so last Friday, a California federal jury handed down a $56 million verdict against the beer giant Miller Coors, which is now known as Molson Coors, for having infringed upon the trademark of Stone Brewing Company, a pretty major purveyor of craft beers. Mm -hmm. When Molson Coors rebranded its Keystone line of beer a few years ago to heavily emphasize the word stone, um, I meant to send this over. Uh, I can send it to you now. If we want to take a look at that packaging that they did in the rebrand. Oh, yes. Now, as you guys uh, can see, key is still in there, but stone is kind of like pushed forward into the foreground and bolted mm -hmm. a little bit. And I believe they either currently or at least until very recently were pushing this uh, or pushing this like slogan for Keystone Light that was grab a stone. Now, we don't know exactly how the deliberations went in this case, but it appears that the jury did find all of that to have crossed the line into infringement. Any litigation surrounding Keystone Beer, I mean, this is a hugely important issue because this has massive implications for frat parties around the nation. <laughs> right. uh, and so I don't want to paper over a very important uh, legal dispute here. Um, so, I mean, is, is it just sort of that you're heading over to the cheap beer aisle, you grab a Keystone Light, and you think it's maybe somehow connected to Stone Brewing, which operates on a sort of more sophisticated level of the beer ecosystem? Or like, what's going on? Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's pretty much the key argument here is that Miller Coors was trying to solidify Stone as this common nickname for Keystone Beer, and particularly on social media. Now, this rebrand happened in 2017, and it came after years of flagging sales for Keystone Light. And those flagging sales started around 2011, which is also the year after I graduated college. <laughs> I don't know, just worth throwing out there. Uh, but so Stone filed suit in 2018, and they're saying that Miller Coors was trying to, quote, steal the consumer loyalty and awesome reputation of Stone's craft brews. Uh, they also claim to have lost about $174 million in profits as a result of the customer confusion created by this rebrand and said that they had to spend another $41 million just trying to reverse that confusion through their own advertising. Mm -hmm. Now, Miller Coors, meanwhile, has been actually like pretty brutal in contesting this whole litigation. Now, on the, on the merit side, they say that the rebrand was just supposed to make Keystone stand out amongst other, let's call them economy beers. Uh, that there's <laughs> no good, good, good term of art by you. Yeah, I like nice that. Job. And um, they said that there's no like credible customer confusion between these two very different types of products. But they also say that this suit is just a publicity stunt that Stone is using to try to drum up attention while it is struggling to stay afloat in the oh. ever-expanding craft beer industry. Nothing drums up attention like a contentious trademark dispute. <laughs> it really, it gets all of our attention. I understand. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's the two Spider-Men pointing at each other except they're saying, sure. actually, actually, you're struggling in the beer industry, <laughs> sir. So, uh, who's the big winner here? I mean, is it, in fact, Stone Brewing? Um, are they seeing this as a big sweeping win for them? Yeah, I mean, they're certainly trying to kind of portray this as like a David beats Goliath situation for the beer world. Um, they put out a statement on Friday saying that, quote, this underdog win is a victory for every craft brewery that prides itself on independence. And, I mean, at its core, this jury verdict is saying that, like, a big dog in the industry appropriated the name of a much smaller company um, to try to, like, sell their wares. But there are some huge wrinkles in this. While the jury did find in Stone's favor on the trademark infringement claim, 
They also found that that infringement wasn't willful, though it wasn't intentional. Also, Stone had been seeking about $216 million in damages to cover those lost profits and that corrective advertising, but the jury opted to just give them $56 million. And that could be kind of problematic for Stone because yeah. during the trial, Stone's co-founder admitted on the stand that the company is at risk of going under. Uh, he said, I think, quote, like, uh, we might lose this company if they didn't get that full damages amount that they were seeking. And at the end of the day, the jury chose to only give them about a quarter of that. And this verdict could still be appealed by Miller Coors. So what is the Goliath doing here? Are they, in fact, going to appeal? So the company told Law360, or I guess they told Haley last Friday. Um, that, <laughs> Me. You know, they're still, yeah, well, they're still kind of weighing their options when it comes to a potential appeal. But its statement to us made some very aggressive points that I wanted to highlight here. For one, they say that it became clear through the trial that Stone's lawsuit was not actually driven by any customer confusion. And then they point out that Stone is facing a $464 million debt load that it has to pay to its private equity backers by 2023, which is just around the corner. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're implying pretty heavily here that Stone's motivations for the suit were more financial than based on confusion between Keystone Light and, say, arrogant bastard ale, which is a stone favorite of mine. I'll admit it. But you know, also this, you know, there's still a possible appeal in the chamber here and there could be some more drama to come out of this courtroom, but it's a huge jury verdict in the IP land for a super visible case and simultaneously might not be the end result, the windfall that Stone was seeking or in fact like kind of desperately need. As homelessness has increased, so too have lawsuits seeking to solve the problem. But the suits from different groups are often at cross-purposes, leaving many cities caught in the middle. Here to talk about it is senior reporter Jack Karp. Welcome back to the show, Jack. Thanks, Amber. It's good to be here. Jack, you wrote a really interesting article um, about an aspect of homelessness that I hadn't really even thought about until I read your piece, and that's that the legal system can be involved here. Can you just give a a broad overview about the two different types of groups that are suing over the issue of homelessness? Absolutely. So, you know, as a lot of people probably have noticed, unfortunately, homelessness has been on the rise the last few years, um, and so have lawsuits over homelessness. Um, And the, the lawsuits kind of generally fall into one of two buckets. There's a series of lawsuits, um, from unhoused plaintiffs, um, who are largely trying to block cities from enforcing certain ordinances that they say criminalize homelessness. And then there's a separate set of suits that are mostly from residents and business owners, although they do actually also include some unhoused plaintiffs generally. And what they're trying to do is kind of push cities to be more aggressive about dealing with homelessness and solving the problem, which they say is kind of impacting their businesses. Gotcha. So let's kind of talk about these two different buckets uh, individually. We'll start with uh, the unhoused. You know, when they're saying, what are they seeking really to to get out of this litigation? That's a very good question. Um, and for the for the most part, what they're seeking is injunctions um, to bar cities and police departments from enforcing certain ordinances. Ordinances like those that say outlaw public camping or remaining in parks after dark or, you know, lying down on sidewalks, laws that the plaintiffs in these cases say make it illegal to essentially be homeless. And just, you know, just for an example, you know, one of these suits uh, that happened pretty recently against the city of Chico in California, one of the plaintiffs in that suit, Andy Lambach, 
is somebody who, you know, used to live in Paradise, California. His house uh, was unfortunately burned down in the campfire in 2018, and he wound up um, being homeless on the streets of Chico. Um, And, you know, what he says in his suit is that basically he's been constantly forced to move, threatened with arrest, had his, you know, the few possessions he has, like a tent and sleeping bag, continuously confiscated by police, leaving him with nothing. Um, so what he and plaintiffs like him are are basically claiming is that these laws violate their constitutional rights. You know, the obvious ones against like due pro- you know, right to due process, um, you know, rights against unlawful property seizure. But one of the most interesting and surprisingly, one of the most common claims that I found in a lot of these suits is claims of cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment. Claims that, you know, enforcing these laws that criminalize homelessness actually constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I I imagine this all falls under the backdrop of cities that do not have enough beds and homeless shelters to offer an alternative, right? Absolutely. So the Ninth Circuit in a case called Martin v. Boise um, ruled recently in the last few years that if a city has more homeless people than it does beds or shelters, then it is uh, cruel and unusual punishment to enforce these kind of ordinances against these people kind of under the the false claim that they had a choice about being homeless, that essentially that these people don't necessarily have a choice about living out on the streets and in public parks. And so you can't criminalize them for doing that. Um, and, and, you know, what, you know, what advocates of these suits say is that stopping cities from enforcing these laws reduces the interaction that, you know, the unhoused have with the criminal justice system. It gives them more stability. It keeps them from constantly being moved, which makes it more likely they'll be able to access services. They'll be able to gain employment and they will eventually be able to kind of find their way out of the situation that they're currently in. So I understand the the impetus behind that set of lawsuits. But now let's turn and talk about the sort of flip side of this coin. You said that there's a different set of suits often brought by residents or business owners. Are they just looking to get the exact same laws heartily enforced? Is that what's <laughs> happening there? That that's that's part of what they're looking for, or at least some of the suits are looking for. So these suits largely come from residents and business owners in some of these same cities. Although, you know, I I will say that, you know, these suits have a diverse group of plaintiffs, and some of the plaintiffs involved are actually unhoused themselves, um, or some of them are formerly unhoused. Um, And what these suits basically want is the cities to be more proactive about, you know, a lot of these kind of homeless tent encampments that we've seen propping up in various cities across the country. Um, You know, one of the the plaintiffs in one of these suits in Los Angeles that I spoke with, Harry Tushdijian, He owns an upholstery supply business in downtown Los Angeles, an area that is commonly referred to as Skid Row. And what he he told me is that, you know, the the encampment near his business has caused him to lose customers. It's it's caused him to have equipment stolen. Uh, He's actually been declined insurance coverage because insurers have basically told him they won't insure his business given the, the situation around it. Um, And he said he's had to spend thousands of dollars on added security. So, you know, that's an example of how some of these encampments are impacting, for instance, businesses or, you know, that these these plaintiffs are claiming 
are impacting their businesses. And what they basically want is for a judge to order the city to do something about it. And yes, to answer your question, one of those things is to more heartily enforce the same ordinances <laughs> that the unhoused plaintiffs are trying to block cities from enforcing. Yeah, so, well, I mean, so these, uh, I think these are pretty realistic or understandable concerns from the business side as well. What are the cities and counties in, in the middle of this? Or, you know, this is kind of an unwinnable position for them, right? You know, how, how do they uh, deal with these two different waves of litigation coming from both sides? Yeah, Jack, it, explain it to us, Jack, because when I read your story, I thought, what are, what's a, you know, a person who's a mayor of a city like this or, you know, in one of the departments that deals with it at the state level even, what are they supposed to do? I mean, they're facing it from both sides. That is an excellent question. And um, I spoke to uh, a woman named Amanda Karras, who is the executive director of the International Municipal Lawyers Association. And the way she described it to me is that the cities are kind of forced to walk a tightrope in between these competing suits. And a, a, a really great example of what that looks like in practice is the situation in LA's downtown neighborhood where, you know, there was a suit in 2016 against Los Angeles from unhoused plaintiffs um, who were looking to enjoin the city from enforcing some of these ordinances. And they they won a settlement in 2019. And the city agreed under that settlement to stop enforcing some of these ordinances against public camping, against um, being in parks um, after dark for three years. Um, and so now, you know, fast forward three years and, um, you know, the, the, the upholstery business owner in L.A. who I spoke with, he traces the rise in the homeless encampment around his business directly to that settlement. He says that when he started his business here in 2013, there was no encampment and it wasn't an issue and it only became an issue after this settlement was was implemented in 2019. So that is a, a, a really good example, I think, in how, you know, cities are kind of ca- caught p- almost ping-ponging back and forth between these two almost opposing solutions that these two groups of lawsuits are trying to basically win in court. And not to mention, you know, as, as uh, Amanda Karras at, at the International Municipal Lawyers Association said, resources that are spent fighting lawsuits are resources that are not being spent dealing with the homelessness crisis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's such a big and overarching problem. I understand why, you know, the various groups are upset with where we are, but there's no easy answers here. I think one thing that your reporting led me to question is, should courts even be involved? I mean, do advocates on any side of this issue, whether it's for the business community or for the unhoused, Do they think that this landing in the judicial branch is good or bad? Uh, That's an excellent question. Um, There are people like the lawyers for the cities who are caught in the middle who think it's definitely bad. Um, But the lawyers in the two groups of suits basically feel like their suits, it's good that they land in the judicial branch, but maybe it's not so great that the other side suits do. Um, You know, there is, you know, one issue that, uh, you know, the cities in particular, as well as advocates for the unhoused who oppose suits from business owners and residents, you know, one issues that that they point to are, you know, there's serious constitutional problems with the court stepping in here that, you know, homelessness is essentially a policy problem. And it should be decided by politicians rather than unelected judges that, you know, if a judge orders a solution to to this problem and that doesn't work, there's no way to hold that judge accountable for that. And, you know, you know, for instance, in, you know, in a, in a case like the L.A. case, 
the judge in that case recently ordered that I think it was, you know, a, a lot of money. I think it might have been a billion, although don't quote me on that, be put aside into escrow to build temporary homeless shelters. And, you know, is that really the role of a judge to make the decision for a city that that money should be spent on, say, temporary homeless shelters as opposed to drug counseling or mental health treatment or permanent affordable housing? But, you know, the advocates for the unhoused do think that, you know, people who are you know, unsheltered, their civil rights are being violated by some of these ordinances and federal court is the correct venue to, you know, protect people's civil rights and the attorneys and plaintiffs on the other side of the issue who are filing suits, you know, from business owners, from residents. What they say is basically that the political branches have failed so miserably for so long in dealing with this issue that they don't have a choice but to resort to the federal courts, that there really just does not seem to be any other avenue that's workable at this point. Jack, uh, this seems like such a tough issue, and you've really given us a lot to think about. I I know I'm going to be pondering um, where I come down on this myself. I think our listeners will be doing the same. Thanks for coming on the show to talk about it. Thank you, guys. It's always great to be here. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Dean, I know you're going to take point on this because you've got some news right up top and then get into our story. I do. Yeah. So it's a bittersweet day from here for me here on the pod. Um, I did get to talk about beer in my segment, which it's, you know, it's real bucket list <laughs> stuff right there. But it is also my final appearance as a co-host on Pro Se. And uh-huh. in fact, t- tomorrow is my final day at Law 360. I was not fired, I should say. It's always good to be <laughs> That's not what I heard. People are going to wonder. <laughs> I appreciate the clarity here because we make so many jokes about firing one another on this show. <laughs> right, it's important yeah. to state the, that for the record. No, yeah. it's been bandied about and it's always good to be the one who leaves first. Um, but no, I, I am the one who's leaving. I'm going to take a little bit of time off and then in mid-April, I'll be taking a reporting position at the Wall Street Journal. Um, and I'm very excited, obviously, but I do want to take a second to just acknowledge that this was a job that I applied to, uh, I applied for months ago, um, before I had any idea that you guys were going to invite me onto the show <laughs> as a co-host. Oh, this is not necessary. Uh, <laughs> it's true, though. Um, and, you know, like, I just wanted to say, while I'm, I'm super excited for this great opportunity, I'm very jazzed for what comes next. Um, but let's just say that I w- was not even thinking about moving on once you guys invited me to come join Pro Se. Um, because this show has been, like, without a doubt, the highlight of my years at Law360. Getting through this has been a total joy. I look forward to it every week. Uh, I've gotten to learn a lot about podcasting. And it's also given me a great chance to like step back and look at the full breadth of the legal news that we cover. Um, and really appreciate how just tremendously talented the reporting staff is at Law360. So you, may, you guys may hear this from me again tomorrow in a savvy email. But thank you guys so much <laughs> for letting me come do this week to week. Uh, you guys are the best at what you do. And if there was a full-time job just making podcasts with you guys every day, it probably would not pay very well, but I would definitely take it. <laughs> um, Unfortunately, it ugh. wouldn't pay very well, Dean, or we'd all be doing it right now. Yeah, uh, exactly. But it's been a pleasure to have you on Pro Se. Um, it's It's been just such a nice experience. And um, we're going to miss you a lot. But I will say, you're going to another great outlet. So write something awesome and come back as a special guest. We'll have you back. Yeah, we got to have you back. I'm so sad. I don't know if you noticed, but I'm wearing black um, because I'm in mourning. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> wow, we were both wearing black for this week. We didn't, yeah, you know, we both knew we would. We didn't. You know, we okay, didn't talk guys, about it. before yeah. this gets too dark, I want yeah, to yeesh. leave us with you know we've we've done a little bit of a um, Dean gets to pick his favorite things type episode today. So you've already talked about beer, but I know you have one other thing you love to talk about. And that's Elon Musk. That's so right. can we talk about him one last time with you? And securities. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. No, this last one is SEC, Edgelords, and Hip Hop. It's all my favorite stuff. So we <laughs> talked a few weeks back about Elon Musk and how he's waging this legal battle with the Securities and Exchange Commission to terminate a settlement agreement that he reached with the agency back in 2018 when he tweeted about taking Tesla private. And you know, that never actually happened. So the deal requires him to have his tweets vetted by a Tesla attorney for potential securities <laughs> violations. He claims oh, the it. SEC has been using it to harass him and his company with unfounded investigations. There's not a lot of precedent for this. This is a settlement that Musk agreed to. We're not really sure exactly what's going to happen next. But he's been really insistent on fighting this thing. And on Tuesday, he decided to compare himself to the rapper Eminem, who's always been kind of an edgelord, but just like, Kind of in an artistic way. I, I don't know if you can yeah. say okay. that. Okay. I, I love this so much because of all the rappers you can compare yourself to. We're going Eminem here. Of course. It's not what I would right? have expected. It's an interesting choice. I mean, yeah. No, it is. And on Tuesday, Musk you know, continued to claim that the SEC has been oppressing his right to free speech by scrutinizing his tweets. And then he cited uh, Eminem's 2002 song, Without Me, as an additional authority. And in fact, he directly quoted from a line in this song. Now, the original line is in reference to the Federal Communications Commission, which we might all remember clashed with Eminem in the early 2000s over his radio play and stirred this like dialogue about radio censorship. The line is, now the FCC won't let me be or let me be me, so let me see. And in his filing, Musk states, he paraphrases and says, now the SEC won't let me be or let me be me, so let me see. Oh, you see oh. what he did there? It's oh, a it's different, it's a different it. federal it. agency. It's right. a, it's the same, but <sighs> it's slightly different. I'm glad it's you very caught up clever. On, you caught some of the nuance. Yeah. The yeah, the the, the <laughs> subversion, the nuance. Uh, guys, I want to make fun of this so much, but I feel like I would make the same kind of joke. I I have to admit, I'm I'm lame <laughs> no. like this. I feel like this You're could come up for this. me. I don't know that I am. I, I don't know that I am. So I'd like to yeah. make fun of Elon Musk here, but I don't think I can. But it does lead me to my big question here, because obviously there's no legal value to quoting Eminem. Maybe <laughs> there right. should be. That's for the future courts to decide. But, you know, this is kind of a troll in its own way. So I just want to open the, you know, this, the floor with this question. Is Musk the Eminem stand here? Or is this his lawyer kind of recognizing the silliness of it? And just letting it take him, you know, just taking into it and okay. like really feeling it out. Do you Ooh. ever watch Ari Melber on um, MSNBC? Mm -mm. There's some really funny John Oliver supercuts of all the times he's referenced rap lyrics. Yeah. So there yeah. are like some there are some people who really love peppering these in. And so the real question is, is that Musk or is that his legal team? No matter I, what, I'm I not feel mad like it's it. Musk. And <laughs> yeah. his legal team was probably like, no, I don't want this in the filing. Please. Like, I don't <laughs> want to sign my name to this. Can you imagine having that conversation with the client? Like, do we have to keep the Eminem quote? Well, yeah. And he's like, I mean, again, this is the same legal department that's like, you know, hey, you're already proofreading my tweets. You got to let me get these bars off in the legal filing. Yeah, literally, as the lyric says, I, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's probably him. I honestly like I am reticent to, to psychoanalyze Elon Musk. Um which we've done a couple times on the show. Um, I think, I mean, I just want to say, let's get our bona fides out there. I attended high school in the early 2000s. Uh, the Eminem show, off the, which, this, which this song is, uh, is on, was a 
formative text for me. Me too. Uh, yeah, I I really sense. think I I really think he left um a lot of ammo on the table though. Uh the <laughs> in the uh in the more recent Eminem lyrics canon, you guys might know. I think the song is called Tone Deaf. He says, "You heard of Chris Christopherson? I'm pissed pissed offerson." Oh. <laughs> which I think would go. also which I think would also work well here. So so many contexts for that quote. That could go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they can always insert these at any point, you know. This is just yeah. one filing yeah. and hopefully what will be a discography of Musk's, uh, you know, like yeah. Eminem listening habits. He's bound to get angry about something again uh, right. anytime soon. Dean, really love that this was your swan song story for us. Feels very on brand. Um, just want to give you a big thanks for being on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, for me too. Hopefully I'll see you guys again at some point. We also want to thank a bunch of other people for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Jack Carp, and our contributing reporter, Kevin Penton. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. That really does help other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.